Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. As we begin to wind down our study, we reflect upon many things happening in our world today and many things that Peter was trying to communicate to these churches that he writes to in both his first and second epistle, first and second Peter. As you recall, in the context of Peter's epistles, he is writing in his first letter to those who were suffering persecution, to those who were wrestling with what was taking place in their world, were feeling the sting of their faith and a faithless generation, and the increasing persecution coming from the Roman government for those who would not embrace a pantheon of gods uh, articulated and, 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 and worshiped by the Roman culture, but uh, a persecution that went to those who believed in only one true God, a persecution that came to those who rejected the lasciviousness and, and, and the perversions of that culture for those who thought and uh, exhibited to that world the sanctity of marriage and, and the sanctity of the truth of God in the darkness of that declining Roman Empire. And because of the light of the church, they were garnishing attention from the public at large. And the public was not happy that the church was taking a stance contrary to the culture. And that persecution ramped up, and Peter spent an additional or considerable amount of time in his first epistle trying to teach them how, how to live a soberly and righteous, holy lives, in fact, that we've sung about this morning in that generation. Then we turned our attention to this second epistle of Peter, Second Peter, and he's writing to some of the same churches, but additional churches who are facing the disruption of, of theological belief, those uh, false teachers that had slipped into the church and were beginning to undermine the truth, in fact, to teach things contrary to the truth. And some of the things that they were teaching is that absolute uh, uh, libertarian kind of freedom that you can do whatever you want to do. God is not coming. There is no day of accountability. Live your best life now, etc., and etc. In chapter 2, he writes a scathing portion of this letter describing the false teachers and the harm that they were doing amongst God's people and those who are spiritually immature being led astray by that. Chapter 3, he, he picks up on those who were saying the Lord wasn't going to come and there is no ultimate accountability, and he takes them to task, and he points out a period of judgment that would come and a period of blessing that would come, and that's where we find ourselves this morning as we wind down our study of this epistle. So if you would, please, look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Follow along. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. It's so important that even in the harshness of his words, Peter is writing from a pastor's heart. He's concerned about his people. He's concerned about their state of mind. He's concerned about the infiltration of these false teachers. He's concerned about those who were weak-willed or little-souled, those who had been led astray by these false teachers, and he's pleading in a pastoral kind of way for them to, to remember and to understand what is to come. He says, in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by a way of reminder that you should remember 
the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish. Be at peace." we look at this text and as we reflect upon Peter's writings, as, as he confronts the believing community and the unbelievers in that community about the impending coming judgment and yet the promises of God, he reminds us of so many things that are so critically important in our day and age and in the culture in which we live. We recognize that there are false teachers and false prophets and false teachings There's doubt cast upon the Word and the promises of the Word. There's this notion even in evangelicalism that all there is is under the sun, so pursue your best life today. And in the midst of all of those lies, Peter is gravely concerned about the churches that he's writing to. Reminded by John, who writes in a time of apostasy as well, that those false teachers went out from us, but they were not of us. It is important to understand that those who reject the impending judgment, those who reject the impending uh, blessing of, of God for those saints of God are not one of us. They're perverting the truth, and they're casting aspersion and doubt, and they're undermining the faith of the little souled and the immature gathered together in those churches. We shouldn't be surprised by that apostasy, and we shouldn't be surprised by that same apostasy today either. For survey all of church history, and you will discover an unsettling fact. The most pernicious and spiritually devastating assaults on the church have always come from within via subtle efforts to undermine the authority of Scripture. So John MacArthur writes in his text, The Inerrant Word. 
Just like the false teachers of Peter's time, there are false teachers today. They're making claims and teaching promises that don't exist in the Scripture. They're minimizing the comfort of the Scripture, the hope of the believer, not in this lifetime, but for all of eternity. And they are encouraging them to live their life according to their rules, to live their life in the pursuit of those passions of the flesh and and those things that they desire most. And that is a dead end. Sometimes the world has a way of reminding us of that dead end and, and rocking the very foundations of our faith and pointing us back to the truth we so desperately, desperately need. And that truth, according to the text, is found in the commandments of Scripture, the writings of the holy prophets, the Scripture as we know it to be. Those scoffers in the last days will twist that Scripture following their own sinful desires. We see that on many fronts today, particularly morality and this notion that somehow evangelicalism should make room in the church for those who are living lives of perversion sexually and otherwise. God forbid that that take place. It is not making room for them. It is to raise up the holiness of God, to raise up a church that lives a holy life in the presence of a perverse generation and stands for those things that are true. And these scoffers in Peter's times were saying, where's the promise of His coming? They're saying, God's promised a lot of things. Show us the proof. We would like to think that this is only the scoffers. Wouldn't it be fair to conclude that sometimes we're asking for that from God as well? Did you ever go through those periods of time in your life where you wonder, where is He? Does He know what's going on? Does He know what's what's happening in my life? These false teachers were saying, ever since the fathers fell asleep, All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. People live, people die. People live, people die. We're living this this cyclical existence here on earth. Nothing's happening. Maybe you shouldn't believe these truths. Maybe you shouldn't live according to these promises. Maybe they're really not promises after all. Those very teachings would undermine the truth of Scripture and rob these believers that Peter is writing to of their stability. And he does write in the text about their stability, about their increasing faith, about the promises of God, and eventually will conclude his book by saying that we are to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have to go back to the book, for the book has the explanations of the things that matter most. And it is a book that allows us to discern these false teachers and their false teachings. And in their teaching, they deliberately overlook truths of Scripture. They de- deliberately overlook the judgment that came upon the world, according to Peter, through the flood. And they deliberately look past this notion of a day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. We don't like to talk about that much, but it's very clear in Scripture that there is a day coming. Not theologically, not philosophically, not something that we conjure up in our minds. Do we live our lives believing that there is accountability? Do we live our lives believing that we must somehow eke out a life under the sun in the midst of the sufferings that challenge our faith and believe that a better day is coming? 
It's critically important to Peter that he communicates this reality, and as he talks about that day of judgment and destruction, he is talking about the destruction of these very ungodly false teachers and their false teachings that have led the church astray. And this day of judgment is being kept. It is, it is, it is a sure thing, and yet God is waiting on that sure thing to become a reality. There's no doubt in the mind of Peter and no doubt in those who are understanding what the Scriptures teach that indeed this day of judgment is coming. He says, do not overlook this one fact in verse 8, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. As you look at that context and that passage of Scripture, Peter is making very clear to these believers you might be wondering where the justice of God is. You might be wondering where the fairness of God is. You might be wondering where the love of God is and where it comes from. You might be wondering about the things taking place in this world, the teachings of these false teachers, the persecutions that you find yourself under, let alone the things that happen in your daily lives that rock you to your core. He says, beloved, he's speaking to believers only. With the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. All of these promises are as sure as the day that they were given by God. And when you get to a place in your life where you're not sure, and you're wondering, when you're feeling all alone and the weight of this persecution, you're personal challenges or even false teachers who are saying, hey, there's a better way than God's way. Be reminded, Peter says, God's way is the only way, and He's patient right now. He's gracious right now. He is merciful right now, but His mercy and His grace and His patience will run out in this earthly existence and sphere. And when that happens, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. I'm reminded of the psalm writer who says, how long, O Lord? How long do we have to deal with this stuff? You look at the news today, you hear the cries of God's people today. You walk with people in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, and Everything seems to point that maybe God isn't good, and maybe He's not gracious, and maybe He's not merciful, and maybe all of this is a mirage. Peter says, don't believe it. God is being gracious until the day of judgment, and when that day of the Lord comes, it will come like a thief. No one is going to be ready. No one's going to be looking for it. Everyone is going to be caught off guard. He's speaking of those unbelievers and false teachers. And in the midst of that day of the Lord, heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What a critical point and junction that is. He is saying to these faithful believers, He's saying to those who are challenged in their faithfulness, and He is saying directly to the false teachers, the day of the Lord is coming. And if we could add a, 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 a question, are, are you ready? Do you understand what is going to take place? This day of the Lord is that day of judgment. There are a couple of phases to that day. 
There is indeed a day of judgment during that tribulation period that both the Old and the New Testament speak of. Those seven years where God pours out His wrath upon the face of this earth and the unbelievers after the church is raptured away, that persecution and that tribulation and that judgment that results in the trumpet judgments and the seal judgments and and the bowl judgments where up to one-third of all of the world and humanity are destroyed in God's justice and in His judgments. We also know it looks even further into the future than that, the great white throne judgment where evil and evildoers will find their ultimate judgment. John calls it the second death, being cast in the lake of fire for all eternity. Satan and his dominions cast into the same lake of fire. And then the creation of the new heaven and the new earth and all the blessings of God fulfilled. But Peter says, that's not today. It's not today. And there'll be people saying, well, if it's not happening today, is it ever going to happen? The world has never been worse. Some of you need to take another history class because the world's always been an evil place. There's always been death and destruction. There's always been ethnic cleansing. There's always been this unrestraint of evil that does inhumane things to other people. There has always been world tyrants. There has always been persecution for God's people. And there's always been heartaches, personal tragedy and pain and individual personal lives because we're not home yet. Peter says, we'll get there soon. Don't, don't for a second think that God isn't going to keep His promise. They're saying, the Lord is slack concerning His promise. He's never going to get around to it. Mark my words, Peter said, He'll get around to it, and judgment is coming. And all the works that are done on earth will be exposed. As we look at that day of judgment and that impending time of judgment on the face of the earth, it's important for us to be reminded in our Christian faith that the reason that we study these prophecies, the reason that it's important that we understand the unfolding of eschatological or last things that take place before the new heaven and the new earth are not to in any way minimize or uh, meet our own curiosities, not to put uh, the tragedies of the world in, in some the- theoretical, theological, eschatological timeline as if real lives aren't impacted and touched. No, we study Scripture. We must be aware of the day of the Lord, and it must move us to a place really important of motivation of motivation to stay the line and, and, and to hold the line and stay the course and, and to stay true to the Scripture and to believe when everyone else tells us not to believe that a better day is coming. That day starts with that day of judgment for all of the evil of the world must be eliminated until all of the promises of God can be fulfilled. But as we look forward to that day, all the works on earth will be exposed There's a judgment both for God's people and the unbeliever in this time and place of of, of judgment that takes place in this day of the Lord. And as a result of all of that, Peter says, since all these things must 
are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? He spends a significant amount of time looking at the false teachers and their false teachings, and he says, this is what they're like. And then in a sense, he's calling upon the believers, this is what you ought to be like. This is how you ought to respond. These are the things that you must cling to, and these are the things that you must know, and these are the things that you must hope for, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved. If judgment is truly coming, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? How should you behave in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation? How does God want you to present yourself in persecution and through doubt? What is God asking of you in times of personal tragedy and doubt? He's asking for holiness, and He's asking for godliness. He's reminding us that there's been a change in the life of the believer from the inside out, and it must work itself out, and more often than not, it works itself out in the most difficult times of life, and we are living in a perilous age. And again, it's no worse than other ages. It's just playing out before our eyes on social media. We were ignorant in the past, but evil has always been with us. False teachers have always been with us. Unbelievers in the midst has always been a reality. And Peter is calling out those genuine believers, and he's telling them to live behave and act like a Christian, and allow that godliness to spill out of you that comes from a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And he says, wait. While you're waiting for the fulfillment of the promises, while you're waiting for the coming day of judgment, you need to be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That word hastening is an interesting word. Can we speed up God's coming? Can we do something to impact His divine plan? Did you hear what He said earlier? The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness. It will be on His time frame always for His glory. And until it happens, we must live these lives of holiness and godliness, and we must wait. Isn't it true? that in seasons of our life, waiting is the hardest thing we can do. Again, the psalm writer, how long, O Lord? But it says, Peter says, wait, wait. A persecuted church, a church facing false teachings, a church in which some of God's people were being led astray, a church lasciviousness and moral laxity had had become a reality because of these false teachings. And Peter says, wait for the coming of the day of God. He seems to, to shift a little bit here, and he changes his emphasis away from the day of judgment and these false teachers and those outside of Christ, and now speaks of a day of God, not the day of the Lord, but the day of God. And the day of God is the day in which God fulfills all of the promises He has made for all of the people of all time, for His glory alone. 
preceding this day of God, all of the enemies of God are, are judged in that day of the Lord. But in this eternal state of blessing, in this eternal state of inheritance, in this eternal state where God will make everything right, in spite of the dissolution of this world, and, and, and in spite of the burning up of judgment, there is a time of blessing that we are called to wait for. Wait for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is the day of God. There was a brief segment in human history where righteousness dwelt. And then Genesis chapter 3 came. From that point forward, we live in a world of unrighteousness, in a world of sin. And although there are some good people, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understands and seeks after God. And yet somehow in His divine providence, to this collection of believers that Peter is writing to and to God's people here today, He chose us before the foundation of the earth and promised us that a better day was coming. You know what the problem of the false teachers are? They say it's today. Well, if this is the promise of God, I'm rather disappointed. I expected a little bit more. Guess what? I'm here to tell you it's way more than you can ever, ever imagine. It is exceedingly abundantly more than you can ever imagine. And during this earthly existence, as painful as it might be, with all that is happening in the world, you can be sure that a better day is coming, a day in which righteousness dwells. That is, the new heaven and the new earth spoken of by John in the book of the Revelation, in the final closing chapters. In essence, he's saying, hey, listen, remember, remember God's not done yet. Remember that He's a gracious God who gives us things that we don't deserve. Remember that His mercies are new every day. He withholds His judgment until the time of that judgment. His mercies are new every day. Remember, there's a place and a promise and a person of the Lord Jesus Christ and in spite of all creation groaning today, there is a permanent resonance to righteousness, but we're not home yet. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, not, not waiting for the day of judgment. Sometimes we get caught in this trap of, of asking God to just annihilate the wicked, and we, we fail to understand now is the time of the gospel. This is the age of salvation. We must be telling the truth even to the worst and most despicable because hope only comes in Christ. And yet we want our enemies to, to somehow come to their impending judgment with no consideration of their eternal souls. But in a moment, in that day of judgment, their eternal souls will be required of them, and they will be cast into that lake of fire. What we're waiting for is not the destruction of the ungodly, although that must happen first. We are waiting for the fulfillment of the promises in the new heaven and the new earth. And while you're waiting for those promises, be diligent. 
put forth some effort, take some time, be directional and intentional in how you live your life so that you are found without spot or blemish and you are found at peace. In essence, in the culmination of his letters, that's what he's been trying to communicate from the beginning. In times of persecution, there's a place of peace. Times of doubt, there's a place of peace. At times of false teachings and apostasy, there's a place of peace. And times of adversity, some like you never thought you would have to walk through, there is a place of peace. And that peace, of course, in Peter's message is always grounded in a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But where's that peace? Where is that peace that is promised to come and that peace that is afforded God's people today? One commentator of Second Peter writes, there seems to be a restless spirit that hangs like a, a pall over this age. The spirit is characteristic of a deep dissatisfaction with life. We see it in a world where there is a constant demand for change. Now we are witnessing it within the organized church. Many of this postmodern age, while searching for the answer to the unrest of their soul, are seeking for it in all the wrong places. And there will always be false teachers who will tickle your ears and make you promises that God never made to you. The church must do a far better job in these last days with a theology of suffering. We don't like to talk about it. And sometimes, because we don't talk about a theology of suffering in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Without a theology of suffering, there's no pursuit of peace. There's no desire for something different than that. There's no teaching that sustains us in the worst of times, and and Peter's trying to address that in, in his letters to these beleaguered people. And everywhere we look today, there is an unrest in a pursuit of something that it cannot be afforded under the heaven. It reminds me of a passage of Scripture and a text that we will be looking at in the spring out of the book of Ecclesiastes. The writer of Ecclesiastes talks about the world, and he talks about life under the sun, and he talks about vanity and vexation of spirit. But in every age and every place, there has always been that reality when we cannot put things into perspective. Paul on Mars Hill addresses two of the philosophical entities of that uh, Greek empire and, and some of the biggest leaders of the day philosophically and lifestyle-wise. We're reminded in Ecclesiastes and we're reminded as well by Paul in Acts chapter 17 as he reasons with these philosophers that one of the first things that the world needs today, particularly the unbeliever, but I think there's a truth for the believer as well, is to understand that this existence under the sun is not some mundane existence that is cyclical in nature. Somehow we must learn to live on the transcendent truth of God that even in the worst of times, there is this undying belief and a peace in our soul that a better day is coming. And even in the midst of the day of judgment where God's wrath is poured out, we must cling to the fact that in Jesus Christ, the day of God is coming, and every promise that He has made, He will fulfill. 
and we'll be His people, and He will be our God, and there'll be no more weeping and, and tears or crying or any such thing. But in this cyclical view of history, there's an exclusion of God. And I think that sometimes these false teachers who are promising a best life today are excluding God even philosophically in their arguments. There's a spirit of nihilism that runs rampant through our culture, this belief that life is really meaningless that leads to this blatant hedonistic kind of lifestyle, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Just have your best life today. Uh, throw caution to the wind. Do whatever you want to do. But Paul dealt with that even in Acts. In Athens, the seat of learning on Mars Hill where the intellectual elite were gathered, he deals with a group called the Epicureans. Epicurus was a Greece, Greek philosopher who taught um, not a, a godless or anti-God kind of existence, but he taught that in the context of life, God is some far distant deity who has no involvement in your present day life. He's not paying attention. He doesn't know your name. He doesn't know what you're going through. And when you eliminate God, life becomes this, this cycle of life and death and life and death and life and death. And if you live for any length of time, it becomes a cycle of life, sorrow, and sadness, and death, and life, and sorrow, and sadness, and death. And, and as Paul is dealing with these Epicureans who, who kind of rejected the pantheon of the Roman gods, they were embracing this, this notion that, that somehow we must let our minds be at ease and not worry about what's happening. Just relax and enjoy. Stop worrying about tomorrow. God really doesn't have a plan. Really not working that plan. <laughs> and he's slack concerning his promises. Can you hear the hiss of the snake? That's exactly what Peter's addressing in these false teachers here. The notion of the Epicureans is pretty simple. There is no judgment after death. God is not interested in what you do in this lifetime. I'm here to tell you that's wrong. God knows your name and your hurts and your sorrows, He's aware of your journey and your longings. He knows what you deal with on a daily basis, and to think that somehow He is so removed that it really doesn't matter is such a, a false reality and leads us to the dangerous conclusion that if He's not involved and He doesn't care, there is no accountability. But Peter has just finished saying there is ultimate accountability, and this day of judgment is coming. Every human being will stand and judgment of one sort someday. If there's no eternal judgment after death, then there's no judgment during life. So, therefore, just live your best life now. You're free to fulfill all of your personal desires. There's no rules or expectations. And what God really wants for you, the Epicureans would say, is to live a life free from pain and hunger and distress and worry. Stop worrying about the future and God that leads to a lifestyle of self-indulgence. And there's nothing new under the sun, the same thing that Paul dealt with in Acts we're dealing with today. These false teachers were saying, where is this judgment? 
He's not going to keep His promises. He's not coming. He's not interested. He's got bigger things to do. And that godless philosophy, people get caught up in this hedonistic kind of lifestyle, maximize pleasure, minimize pain. There is nothing that comes after. What a dangerous philosophy that has dangerous, dangerous conclusions. Paul and Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill also deals with the Stoics. And the Stoics realized that life went through this cyclical thing, and you live, and you go through difficulty, and you die, and you live, and you go through difficulty, and you die. And they came up with this this notion of imperturbability. (laughs) It's a fatalism in disguise. It says things happen. There's nothing that you can do about it. Stop ruminating on it. Get on with your life. Stop being driven by your emotion and find a place somehow in your life where you remain undisturbed and unperturbed by whatever comes your way, and that is the modern stoicism that we we see talked about today. It's rooted not in a plan of God. It is rooted not in a promise of God, but it is rooted in this notion that the world is governed by fate, and there's nothing that you can do about it. It's not a judgment. It's not a condemnation. It's not a blessing. It is just fate. You are at the hands of fate, and there's nothing that you can do about it. So just learn to live with it in a state of imperturbability. For even if there was a plan, you couldn't know it. That fatalistic kind of lifestyle, life seems pointless. In fact, R.C. Sproul commenting, And Acts chapter 17 says, if there is no God, then human life is a cruel joke. It is a tale told by an idiot. People are listening to that story today. People in the churches were listening to these false teachers. They had been led astray by these these realities in this world, and, and perhaps they were struggling just like we struggle yeah, where is God? What is He going to do about this? Is, is this really real? And let's not paint this picture of our faith as never doubting, because if your faith is a faith that never doubts, I would question your faith. From what perspective? We're human beings designed to feel and to grieve and to understand the hardships and the heartaches and and the hard realities, the day of judgment and the day of God, and, and we all go through those times. And if, in fact, there isn't a God or He's disinterested somehow, life is a cruel joke. So how do you survive that? You don't. And in a post COVID world, where drug and alcohol abuse and suicide death has skyrocketed exponentially. There's a direct reflection of this kind of philosophy that says either this is my best life now or I'm never going to get it, so what is the point? And all around us, that is our world. So how do we react? Peter says, beloved, since you're waiting for these things, the fulfillment of the promises, be diligent to be found in Him without spot or blemish. He is not talking about perfection. You know why you're without spot and blemish? 
because of what Christ did on the cross of Calvary, and your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. He's not calling us to perfection. He's calling us to rest. And what is He calling us to rest in? He's calling us to rest in our Savior, to rest in the promise that eternity is coming, to rest in the promise that all of His righteousness will control, and we will dwell in that land of righteousness, to rest in His promises knowing that what He says He always does. And when someone challenges you in that, intellectually or otherwise, you cling to that belief in your Savior, and you find rest even in the worst of times, believing that God is good even though everything around you shouts He's not. And that's the theology of suffering that we're weak in. Some of us have been led astray by these false teachers. God promised, bless me if I tithe and I go to church and know God blesses you in Christ and in Christ alone. But in the midst of that blessing, we must look at life that has a distinct beginning and a distinct end. And then in between, there's these 70 or 80 years on, on, on this earth. We must look and take the long view of life, and we must look beyond the sun and see God for who He is, and we must know that we have a God who cares, who is engaged, who is involved, and will do everything according to His plan. And that rest is spoken of in Scripture. And the only way to enter into that rest is through a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And in that personal relationship, you have a security that not even the false teachers can take from you. No matter what happens in this world, we take the long view. And never once, never once has God promised His people a life free from sin, a life free from heartache, a life free from tragedy, a life free from this world. What God promises us is that there's something better than this world and something deeper to hope in, and something greater to to cling to that affects how you live, waiting for the reality of His blessing. For Peter wraps up this section by saying, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, are you waiting? Let me ask you a different question. Are you waiting patiently? That's that's the problem. (laughs) I know this is going to happen. You can argue with me all you want. I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand before Him someday. I know that. Someday I wonder, Lord, what are you doing? What's what's the deal? How long? The believer's rest is to prepare me to wait in the midst of life's most difficult circumstances for that time in which we dwell in righteousness that creates this diligence to live the best that we can in the midst of the circumstances of life that is not perfection, but, but leaning on God Himself and find peace. David Gibson says, the uncertainties of life are meant to have a shaping influence in the uncertainties of life. We learn perhaps through great pain to be deeply content with not knowing. If you've been through anything in your life, you know that's the path. I have no answers. There is no way. How long, O oh Lord? 
In the same way that God answered the psalm writers, He answers the believers who are the recipients of this letter as long as it takes. But the Lord is not slack concerning His promises. So wait. So wait. As we wait, we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And all of the glory goes to Him and to Him alone. A recent text published by Mark Talbot, When the Stars Disappear, is a book that works through both Old and New Testament and the suffering of God's people. And it tries to, to somehow glean from the sufferings of God's people, whether collectively or individually, lessons that are critically important when we struggle. He says, when profound suffering strikes, it can seem that all the stars God gave us and have guided us over our Christian lives have disappeared. And yet at the core of the Christian faith is the belief that God sovereignly controls all of life's storms and that He can, and indeed He ultimately will, see His people safely through even the worst of times. That's Peter's message. While you wait, know that God's promises are sure, and He will do what He says always. And while we wait, we have to remind ourselves that we're not home yet. We're at peace to those who've acknowledged their sin, accepted the fact that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and died for your sins according to Scripture, that He was buried and raised again the third day, and salvation is in no one else. To those who have genuinely repented and come to Christ, there is peace. That peace is only ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, in the end of the day, Peter says in the beginning of his letters, you have hope because of Christ. And in the end of his letters, you have hope because of Christ. And to those who are facing life under the sun, wait. I wish it were easier. I wish there were answers that I could give you. I wish I could make the worst of things the best of things, but I can't. But I can point you to the one who can, and I can encourage you as Peter encouraged the saints. Wait. Be without spot or blemish. And be at peace. May the peace of God rest on all of God's people in a world that is spinning out of control, and may it be for His glory alone. Father, thank You for truth that addresses every reality in life, for an awareness that we have a God who understands and knows, an undying belief that a day of judgment and a day of God, great blessing, is sure. 
for a people who is waiting, sometimes not so patiently, for that time in which we dwell in righteousness, still our souls, instill through Your Spirit the peace of God that passes understanding, and quiet our hearts and minds to know and to believe that everything that You've said will come to pass for Your glory. Surround us with people that will remind us of that when we lose touch, and we will. And through Your people, and through the Word, and through Your Spirit, and through Christ alone, grant a peace to all who are in Christ Jesus for Your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.